Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How you guys doing this morning? It's good to see you, family. Really good to see you. If you haven't done it already, if you could go ahead and uh, share us on Facebook, the live feed that is. And for those of you watching by live feed who've elected to uh, watch us and join us in that way, I am so glad that we're capable of doing that. We welcome you here as well. How many of you um, get the sense that it kind of feels like the whole planet right now is taking a test we haven't studied for? <laughs> Does that sort of feel that way? The last time we faced anything like this was 102 years ago, and I don't think anybody on, and certainly nobody in this room, I certainly, as I looked at the new year, did not think that on March the 15th uh, we would be where we are right now. I mean, I just, this is not the year any of us envisioned. We're living in unprecedented times, but thankfully we do it with a certain God. And uh, it's just a delight to worship him with you today. And uh, for whether you are here or whether you're joining us virtually, your pastor's thankful. Let me tell you what I'm thankful for before we get into the message today. First off, I'm thankful for good leadership. Leadership at every level, from our federal officials all the way down, who've given us good, solid information. We don't have all of the answers but we have the best information that's available. And even as we gather here today, every decision we have made this week as to what we will do, what we won't do, what we should or shouldn't do in the future is based on that information. Some of that, by the way, you can find at our welcome desk uh, today. Uh, documents from the Centers for Disease Control. Please take as much of that as you think you or your family need. Uh, and I'm thankful additionally for leaders in our own church family who have guided us. You have no idea what an incredible blessing it is to your pastor to have both an RN and an MD among our elders here. And uh, to be able to give us sound advice based upon the data that they are looking at. I'm very thankful for all of them and the other healthcare professionals who have chimed in and who have given us sound advice. You can be sure we're gonna act on that advice, on the data that we have as, as we move forward. I'm thankful today for our facility staff. Did you notice it smells just a little bit like a hospital today? <laughs> That's because we have men and women who've been working really, really hard to make sure that we're as clean as we can possibly be. And even as I speak to you right now, they're out there right now, wiping down door handles, flat surfaces. Uh, that'll happen as well at the next service. Uh, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Steve Lowry. Uh, and for our facility staff. I am. And thirdly, I am thankful for a group of people that we hardly ever notice unless something goes wrong with the sound or the lights. Um, and we've got probably more people watching us online, I'm sure, than are here in front of me today. There's a part of me... Um, that just like any pastor is saddened by that, but, but most of me is very happy that folks believe that they can be wise, that they can elect to, to stay home 
Uh, in the future, I don't know what that holds for us. Just to be honest for you, it is highly possible. Many churches quite larger than us have already done this because of crowd concerns and, and social distancing concerns. We could very well uh, have to go online for a, a lengthy period of time and do that completely. Uh, I just I, Here's what I'm thankful for. Up to 7 o'clock this morning, if we needed to flip that switch, we could have flipped that switch. And we can do it precisely because of the men and the women that are in that booth. And so if you happen to be watching live right now, you can't clap the way I'm about to ask our people to. But why don't you go ahead and put a little message in the thread if you've got one there on YouTube or Facebook. Give them a thumbs up. Give them a shout out. Tell them thank you for everything they're doing so that we can be the church today even if we can't physically all be together. Would you give them a hand for me? So what's next, Pastor? Well, this week, Pastor Dave and I will meet starting tomorrow, followed on Tuesday by a meeting with our executive staff, followed on Wednesday by a meeting with our elders in God's kind providence. That was our regularly scheduled meeting uh, to figure out what to do next. We're going to be looking at two things primarily. Number one, internal contingencies. Uh, so watch your Facebook feed. Watch your email box. If we send you an email, it would be wise for you to open it, even if you're only one of those people who only does that about twice a month. Um, we don't know exactly what needs to change yet, but we're going to be asking all those questions based on the updated information. We have already begun scale down and scale back plans up to and including going completely online. And so everything from these the, this afternoon's events, which we've already canceled just to give our staff and our, our volunteers some time to kind of rest and do what they need to do um, and to be able to talk about how do we minister to our people. And by the way, if you're watching us right now, don't think that you're going to be forgotten. Thank you, in fact, uh, for being wise for you and your family. If you've elected to stay home because you're in a vulnerable population or you or a member of your family have an autoimmune disorder or a chronic illness that puts you at greater risk, we're grateful that you made the decision you, you made today, and we are going to be checking up on you. There's all kinds of wonderful staff and volunteers around this joint that we're just not going to have as much to do around this joint in the coming weeks. We're going to be redirecting those resources to our entire body of Christ. And so let me say this in particular. If you're part of one of those vulnerable populations, and right now it just occurred to you that you don't have any toilet paper, <laughs> that could happen. We were, at, uh, we were at a store last night. We, we saw the trauma inflicted on the, on the toilet paper aisle. Anything else that you happen to need, but you're gonna, it's going to require you to, to, to move from your home, and you're a little bit nervous about that, please stay home and give us a call. Send us an email. That goes for everybody in this room as well. If your situation changes, we're going to get it to you, okay? Because we're going to be the church during this time. God has called us to do this. That's the first thing, internal contingencies. Secondly, we're going to talk about our external mission because there's a lot of people in our region right now that are pretty freaked out, and I understand that. There are a lot of people, even in our church family, who own small businesses that are already starting to hurt from this, and they need a lifeline of some sort. There are individuals who've already lost their jobs as a result of this, and they need our help. The needs are unknown, but I can almost guarantee you they will increase. More information is coming to you 
as soon as we have it and can communicate it effectively, I promise you, you will get it, okay? But here's my message to you. God is sovereign, and God has given us this moment, and we're going to be wise, and we're going to be vigilant, but we will not be afraid because Jesus is faithful. And I am delighted to talk to you this morning about Jesus. Galatians chapter 4, that's where we're at this morning. In 1994, Amy and I had been married for just a few months. We were planning our first trip to Disney World. Uh, My parents had taken me uh, on a number of occasions as a child. She'd actually never been. So I had an opportunity to introduce my wife to the mouse. Now, 26 years later almost, I'm wondering whether I should regret that decision. But we were doing it uh, back in 1994. And we went to the theaters in advance of that to see this brand new film that was coming out entitled The Lion King. Okay, not the newer version, the older cartoon version. Uh, It involves this young lion named Simba who loses his father as a child. And then, of course, the whole plot follows the challenges that he faces for the rest of the film. But those challenges are met by a message that he receives from the vision of his father, Mufasa, telling him one thing, remember who you are. You remember that? 1994. Now, fast forward to 2002, and I'm sitting in another movie theater. I'm watching a bunch of Italian fishermen rescue an unconscious American with two gunshots in his back out of the sea. He wakes up, and they discover he has disassociative amnesia. But throughout the plot of the movie, he discovers that even though he really doesn't know who he is, he has the ability to speak multiple languages with fluency. He has the ability, furthermore, to utilize some some pretty, pretty intimidating combat skills. Turns out this young man's name is Jason Bourne. And he was in the middle of a clandestine operation with the Central Intelligence Agency before whatever trauma had been inflicted on him gave him that disassociative amnesia. And he spends the entire film, kind of like Simba, eight years earlier, trying to figure out who he is. Fast forward to about six weeks ago. Mrs. Rainey and I were sitting in another theater down in Winchester, Virginia, watching the film adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's classic Little Women. And yes, gentlemen, I still have my man card. (laughs) The main character, this young lady named Joe March, apart from her sisters Meg, Beth, and Amy, struggles. Part of the reason for that is because Joe in particular is confounding the, the conventional wisdom of her day regarding the place of women. And as you can imagine, living in that kind of contrarian way in 19th century New England will lead to some struggles. There we were. All these years later, after watching Simba, one more story of a character struggling to live out their truest self. Three different films, a quarter of a century apart, radically different genres, the exact same thing. It's amazing when you consider the volume of media, books, movies that deal with the subject of identity. I mean, if art mimics reality, if that adage is true at all, that reality is that our culture has an obsession with finding our true selves. And that path almost always involves a struggle. And we never experience this truth anymore than when we're talking about our walk with God and when our walk with God doesn't always reflect what we say we believe about him and what we say we believe about ourselves. This is one of the reasons we started a series several weeks ago called The Grace Driven Life, moving verse by verse 
through Paul's letter to the Galatians, a letter written to people who have been convinced that if you want to follow Jesus and be a son of Abraham, you need to be circumcised, you need to submit to the law. Paul has actually just finished, as we finished up chapter 3, reminding them that no, what connects you to Abraham is not what you do to your body or what your ethnicity is or what your position in social hierarchy is. What makes you a son of Abraham is faith. And that faith makes you an heir. But what we're going to discover today is that there are a lot of people who belong to Jesus, who are sons and daughters of the Most High God, but they continue to live as though they are slaves. Why is that? Why do they live that way? The reason is because they've lost their identity, like Simba, like Jason, like Job. They have forgotten who they are. And when sons and daughters live like slaves, it can take a number of forms, addiction, anger, dysfunction, immorality, and at the root of all of that is not the inability to follow a rule. It's spiritual disassociative amnesia. It's not that you need to try harder, grasp tighter, hold on longer. It is that you, me, we in those moments have forgotten who we are. So how do you stop living like a slave? How do you live a truly grace-driven life? Let me give you three ways. Number one, is don't forget how you got it. Don't forget how this came to you. Verse 1, Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, there's, there's a legal example here for the first century that's really familiar to us because our own system of law works essentially in the same way. Prior to the spring of 2018, all three of my children were heirs to the entire estate of their mother and me, which consisted of a very small amount of money, real estate with a mortgage huge on it, and I don't know, about 10,000 books. But, but it was theirs, right? If something, God forbid, had happened to both their mother and to me, all three of my children would have simultaneously become the co-owners of everything. But here's the thing. As minor children, they would, have, they would have controlled nothing. The reason for that was because our will was set up at that point in time for everything to go into a trust and an adult trustee, someone that we felt was, was responsible enough to handle that, would have dealt with that. And so it would have gone into a trust until each of them reached a certain age predetermined by their mother and me and instilled into our will. That all changed in the spring of 2018 because our oldest son, Samuel, became an adult. I know you're looking at me thinking, Pastor, there's no way you're old enough to have an adult child. I know. I look young, don't I? But I really do. I have an adult child. I've had an adult child for two years now. And on that day, he becomes a trustee. Not just an heir, an heir with a banking app. That's scary, isn't it? An heir with control and an heir with complete freedom. And so there's a similar legal arrangement that existed in Rome. Paul uses that arrangement to point the Galatians to a spiritual reality that they've apparently, they've apparently forgotten. You were once enslaved, he says, 
to the elementary principles of this world. Now, the ambiguity of the words here has led to a lot of debate about exactly what Paul is referring to. One, just one commentary that I use to check myself when I'm preparing messages like this spent eight entire pages just on this one phrase. Okay, so for the sake of time, I'm not going to elaborate on that. Some of you who are nerds like me, that's going to be very unsatisfying to you, and I'm sorry about that. And if you want to send me a message, I'll be glad to send you back all the resources and sources that I've used in preparation for this message so that you can dive deep. But the rest of the people besides you and me want to eat lunch today. And so in respect for that, let me just kind of tell you what I believe Paul is saying. The previous context, the end of chapter 3, contains this highly involved discussion about law and gospel, and in particular, how the existence of the law leads to and reveals our desperate need for the gospel. And so if we remember that, and we combine it with the truth that the chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original text, it just makes sense that, to assume that, that Paul's still on the same train of thought, which would mean that when he uses the phrase elementary principles of the world, it's a vague reference to the Galatians' previous life under the law. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're like a kid who's reached legal age and you've got the freedom to do anything you want, but when you try to make a decision about whether to buy a car or whether to go to college or whether to do something else, you keep going back to the guardian that you used to have. And to the Galatians, he's saying, don't be like that. You were under the law. You have now been set free from that in the same way that a minor child becomes an adult, gets legal rights instantaneously. You now have freedom in Christ. You don't have to go back to the law anymore to know how to live. You don't have to know that. He's trying to keep them from going back. You know, I have very faint memories. They're very faint. Of teaching my oldest son, Samuel, long division. Now, if you want to know why they're faint, it's because he is about to become a rising junior, majoring, double major in, in mechanical engineering and physics, and a minor in mathematics. And part of the way he's making his living while he's on campus is by tutoring calculus students. He still comes to me for advice on a lot of stuff, but it's been a long time since he has asked his old man about anything mathematical. And that's kind of appropriate, isn't it? He's smarter than me, at least in that regard. And see, that, so it would be ridiculous, right? But you know what? That's what legalism is. It creeps into your life. It holds you captive. You forget who you are. You forget what you have. These Galatians no longer needed circumcision. They had Christ. They no longer needed the law to rule over them. Because now, as we saw in chapter 2, they have Jesus living within them, giving them the power to obey without those external rules. He doesn't, look at the way Paul describes this to the church at Corinth. They're going to put this verse up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says the following, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right? So sin is still sin. The, the, the fulfillment of the law doesn't mean I can live however I want. But what's the antidote to this? All right? Remember, the Corinthians were just a woefully immor immoral people. How does Paul fix this? He doesn't take them back to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, you better stop that. 
Can't you read? This is what the rules say. What does he say? And such were some of you. But you don't have to live that way anymore. Why? Because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's not taking them back to a bunch of rules and saying, this is what you got to do. Follow this, follow that. He's saying, you have spiritual disassociative, disassociative, I can't even talk this morning, amnesia. You've forgotten who you are. Remember, that's who you were. You've been washed. This isn't who you are anymore. How many people do I have in front of me? How many people do I have watching at home right now? You've just been bound by addiction, dysfunction. There's some repeated cycle of sin, and you haven't been able to get out of it. You feel like it defeats you time after time. Listen to me, brother, sister. You don't need another rule to follow to break you free from that. You need to live in the identity you've already been given in Christ Jesus, not as an heir, an heir with power, an heir with freedom, an heir able to live a grace-driven life. Don't forget how you got it. Secondly, don't forget who gave it to you. This brings us to a really important part of the text, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So then, you are no longer a slave, but a son. We sing a song about that around here, don't we? And if a son, then an heir through God. God's desire was not to leave sinful humanity in a state of eternal enslavement that would lead to eternal damnation. He wanted to do far more than merely free us from that. He wanted to bring us back into the family. And so the language of adoption gets used here. We have a lot of adoptive families in our church. Ours is blessed to be one of them. And one of the things that those of us with that experience will tell you is that adoption requires great sacrifice. Domestic, international, whether it costs a lot of money or just a little bit of money, it doesn't really matter. There's always sacrifice involved. Now, for us, that sacrifice involved about two years of waiting It involved adding an additional bedroom to our home in Howard County, Maryland. It involved trading in a small SUV that my wife absolutely loved for a minivan that had more seats and longer, you know, room for more, you know, longer legs, because even our boys, their legs weren't getting any shorter at that point in time. That expense then required greater sacrifice. International adoptions are quite expensive, and uh, our family, I'm sure, is like most of your families. We don't just have $25,000 or $30,000 laying around, nothing to do with it. And so, where are you going to get this from? And so, we made a lot of sacrifices. We stopped going out to eat. We cut the cable. I'm serious. I watched the NCAA and the NFL from the Green Turtle Bar down the street for two straight seasons. I took on additional contract work. We did all manner of things. Now, here in the midst of all that, here's the one thing I would have never done, okay? I would have never exchanged one of my sons in order to get my daughter. You know why? Because I love them both. I love them. I, I, I wouldn't have done that. It, it's, not, it's not about not loving her. It's about loving these as well. And in our conversations, particularly the financial ones, 
we were trying to do this. We were trying to do it wisely. We were trying to do it in a way that wasn't thoughtless because if we just thoughtlessly and recklessly do this, then it, it could harm our family financially, which means it's going to harm her when we bring her home. And so we had to think through all of that because I would have never, and even now, don't ask me to make the decision, which one of your kids would you sacrifice? I, none. You can have me. You can't have any of my three children. And so when you think about that, there's some shock value here. When the language of adoption includes the following action, God sent forth his son. This one is an, an essential part of the process that brought you and me from, from where we were to where we stand today in faith. And sometimes that exchange is looked at in the, in the wrong way. The late Marcus Borg, theologian, founder of the Jesus Seminar, used to call this doctrine the doctrine of divine child abuse. That we, we have to do away with slaughterhouse religion, this idea that, that blood sacrifice had to be given in order to bring you and me to God. William Paul Young, author of The Shack, you may have heard of that book. Another one who actually had said, I, I just can't conceive of this idea of substitutionary atonement because God would not beat the hell out of his son. And if you think of atonement in that way, you're thinking of it in the wrong way. The atonement was not the work of a, of a father abusing a child. The atonement was an agreement between two equal partners in the Trinity. This is a whole lot less like someone abusing a child and probably a lot more like the experience that some of you have had to watch your child raise his or her right hand, take an oath to their country, and go to a place that sometimes drives you out of your mind. You didn't force them to go there. They went there willingly. You both agreed that they should serve. You both agreed that it's, it's worth your country, and you watched it. Some of you have buried your children as a result of something like that. And there's been an American flag over a casket, and you were heartbroken, and you still are, and you will never, ever get over it. But there is a sense of accomplishment in what they died for. That is a far better analogy to what we're talking about here. Where the child says, the son in this case goes, I will do what is necessary. And the father says, go. And the result of what Martin Luther would call that great exchange is that you and I are now sons and daughters. The sacrifice that needed to be made was made without question. And here's the, here's the fun part. The chief indicator of my new faith and yours, it's not the law of Moses. It's the third member of that Godhead called the Holy Spirit. We're going to get deeper into this. Yeah, we may have to do it online in the coming weeks, but, but it's coming. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? One of the things we believe is that he resides in us and that the result of that is we naturally cry out, Abba, Father. It's a cry of intimacy. Researchers in France and Germany about eight years ago examined 60 healthy newborn children. And they found something fascinating. Each one of those newborns had their own cry melody. Did you know this? I had no idea this was the case. It's a specific pattern of sounds unique to that infant. 
And then closer examination, they put an oscilloscope on those cries. And the oscillation in those cries revealed something deeper. That the, the cries of those infant babies reflexively matched a cry, their cry to the intonations of their mother's voice. A baby's cry matches, albeit in a very primitive way, its mother's language. I want you to think about that. That's amazing to me. At the level of basic biology, a baby reveals who his or her mama is by nature of their cry. Now think about that when you read what Paul says here. Because he says the Spirit of God produces in us a cry of Abba, Father. Brothers and sisters, there's only one other person in all of Scripture who ever addressed God Almighty that way, and it was our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You and I have that same way to talk to him now. God, through his Spirit, has given you the capacity, us the capacity, in our deepest pain, in all of the uncertainty we're facing right now, to cry in a way that matches our Heavenly Father's language. Just like your Lord and elder brother, Jesus, you're part of the family now. And Jesus is the one who brought you here. How did he do that? Paul goes on, by being born under the law. To redeem us who were under the law. The very thing that we could never lift. The very thing that Jesus, it's the very thing that, that in his perfect righteous obedience, he took off our backs. And so Paul says, stop carrying that load. Stop living as though you're still under that burden and live like the adopted son that you are. You say, well, pastor, isn't it? I mean, it's adopted son. Like our, our culture uses adopted as a pejorative sometimes. Like even our culture will even make a joke like, well, he's adopted. Well, he's not. Well, that's because our culture doesn't understand adoption. Let me tell you something, that little girl in my house, she's every bit as much my daughter as those other two boys are my son. Every bit as much. Adopted families will tell you the same thing. When God adopts you, brothers and sisters, you're very much in the family. You're very much in the family. So let me ask you this. It's funny if message you prepared six weeks ago that you just have no idea what it, how it's going to be applied. Have you listened to yourself cry lately? Have you, if you were to hear a recording of yourself responding to everything that's happened just in the last seven days, would you hear yourself responding to all of that with the distinctive cry that the Holy Spirit has given you to remind you both of who you are and, and what brought you here. That, listen, the cry the Holy Spirit has given us, even in unprecedented times like this, it's not a cry of indignation. Why me? Why now? Why are you doing this? If there was really a God, why would he allow us? It's not a cry of indignation. It's not a cry of desperation and panic. What are we going to do? It's a cry of intimacy and dependence. It's a cry that acknowledges. It's not this prosperity gospel crap that denies the reality of basic biology and medical science. In fact, I'm hoping that theology dies during that season before more people go to hell from it. 
This is, this is a theology that recognizes the reality of a situation and says, I don't know why God is allowing this. And I don't know what we're going to do. But I have a father. And, and he's calling me back to him. Remember how you got here. Remember who brought you here. Here's the final thing. Don't go back. Don't go back. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's the more important thing, remember earlier? Doesn't really matter if I know God. What matters is if he knows me. You are now known by him. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and then comes just almost a statement of exasperation on Paul's part. I if you've been a spiritual leader for longer than a couple of years, you've felt this way. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. See, the Galatians are in a tough spot because the way forward doesn't look obvious or easy. And so what they do is they decide they're going to turn back to what's most familiar to them. In their case, holy days, dietary restrictions, circumcision. But they're not the first people to do this, are they? When the Israelites come out of Egypt, they're not in the Sinai Desert very long before they decide in Numbers 14. Why is the Lord bringing us here? Moses, why did you bring us here? Let's go back to Egypt. We know we were slaves. We know we never got a day off. We know they could beat us at random. But hey, at least we got free housing. So let's go back to what we know. Here's the other thing, though. The Galatians aren't the last people to do this, are they? I, I imagine... There are probably people who long before I arrived here would sit in these seats with hands lifted, praying with passion. And if you were to find them today, they would say, I don't even know if there is a God anymore. There may be a few in front of me right now, either because of what's happened in the last week or maybe just because of ongoing stuff. You've struggled with addiction or there's something else and you're not sure how to deal with the problems that are surrounding you. And so you say, I'll just go back to what I know because that's what I know. It, it, is, it is amazing, isn't it? How enticing our pre-conversion practices become when things get hard. When you feel desperate. But when you go back, you leave behind the only one who truly knows you and can truly help you. And, and here's the Here's the thing you need to know about Jesus. He's not going back there with you. He will not do it. Paul knows this, which is why the anguish is revealed in verse 11. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul sees these to whom Jesus has offered sonship, living like slaves and he is heartbroken. The struggle of the Galatians is not peculiar and it is not unique. The temptation to turn back is never far from any of us. But we are warned here. There's only one way forward. There's only one way you enter the kingdom. 
And that is by continuing in the faith. Sometimes sons live like slaves. Sometimes we fall away. Sometimes we do what older preachers would call backsliding. Sometimes we sin. Sometimes it goes on for a long, long time before we come back. Sometimes it's just a moment of desperation, like I was having yesterday. You know, we'd, we'd had some beautiful weather. How many of you guys got to get out and get in the beautiful weather? Wasn't it great? God gave us beautiful days. And my wife and I were talking about that. In the midst of everything that's going on, at least we've got beautiful weather. And yesterday, in the midst of talking with staff, talking with our elders, trying to juggle all the information that was coming in, literally all the way up until midnight when I went to bed last night, wondering, are we doing the right thing? Do we need to flip the switch? What do we, what do we need to do here? Trying to make the best decision I could. And around 4 or 5 o'clock yesterday afternoon, I'm thinking at least I have beautiful weather. I was out on the deck. The temperature dropped to 50 degrees, and it started sleeting. And then I felt my phone go off, and I looked at it, and it was a text from my wife saying, we have no water. This all happened like within two minutes. I'm not even making this up. You ever had a moment like that? And you're just like, what's going to happen next? I am in control. That's what God was reminding me of at that moment. I am in control of precisely nothing. Nothing. And it was like the Holy Spirit said, that's right, big boy. Nothing. Nothing. But there is not one maverick molecule in this universe, including COVID-19, that is not under the control of a sovereign God. Do not take the prosperity route that tells you that means he's always going to protect you from it, because the fact is, he may not. Do not take the route that is always selfish and ask, what is in this for me and why? There's two things you need to know in light of that truth. In fact, I, one of the things I hope that we can delve deeper into something that perhaps in our, in our fat years of prosperity and other things maybe we've left behind because we thought it was irrelevant is the doctrine of divine sovereignty and an understanding of a theology of suffering. Your Bible is pregnant with that stuff. And it's the very thing we need at moments like this. When I think of the sovereignty of God over every blade of grass, over every virus on the planet, over the tallest mountains that he can make crumble, over the most powerful kings that he can bring down by merely snapping his fingers, everything from the great to the microscopic, all of a sudden I develop something I should develop, which is a greater fear of God than anything else. And simultaneously, because I'm his son, a greater trust in God than anything else. A greater trust. But you can't walk away from that. See, sometimes in churches like ours, we, we pervert a version of something we call eternal security. What we're trying to do is take people who don't follow God, who don't care about God, who've walked away from God, but we want to still think that they belong to God, or maybe it's us. We want to think, we, well, we still belong to God. Listen, eternal security is a glorious, comforting truth. But it has to be confessed within the wider witness of Scripture. 
Look at Romans chapter 11. Stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he's talking about the Jews here, neither will he spare you. What does that mean? Well, Scripture does teach us, John chapter 10, Romans chapter 8. I mean, yeah, Romans chapter 8. No one will pluck them out of my Father's hand. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. But what we learn here and in other places as well is you will only be saved if you do not turn back. You will only be saved if you endure to the end. You've you got to put the two together. Scripture teaches both. Because if your faith is eternal, it's real. And if it's real, it will endure to the end. Not once saved, always saved. But once genuinely saved, forever following Jesus. The evidence that you're a son or a daughter of the Most High God is not the intensity of emotion you may feel at the beginning of your faith journey or the, how powerful you may feel after a baptism. We're going to have a baptism service at the 11 o'clock. We look forward to that. The evidence that you're a son or daughter of God is the endurance of that faith over time. Think of, think of marriage, right? You think, I think of all the couples. They don't want to go to counseling because we don't have the money while they spend $10,000 on freaking flowers. And then they wonder inside five years why they're sitting in a counselor's office to fix all the crap that they broke that they didn't need to break in the first place. That's because the wedding is not the marriage. Amen? It's not. Ask anybody who's been married longer than 15 minutes. Beyond the honeymoon. We'll make that clarification, all right? The wedding is not the marriage. Listen, when it comes to God, this is what I fear we may find out over the next several weeks with everything going on in our world. When it comes to a relationship with God, there are way too many people, particularly in our easy, cheap grace, sitting on padded seats in a climate-controlled building, come to soak up everything I get and go out and consume, 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 who call themselves Christians, and all this time that the fat cows have been around and things have been easy, they've been all wedding and no marriage. The warning here is don't walk away. You ceremonially call yourself a son, but you live like a slave, and that's because that's what you are. Don't forget who brings you here, and don't take that forgiveness for granted. You may have prayed a prayer. And because of that, you're satisfied to just sit there complacent with your get-out-of-hell-free card that you think you have. Maybe you follow Prozac Jesus, the one that brings you comfort and is your BFF when you get into a jam. But otherwise, there's nothing about your life that distinguishes you from your neighbors. There's nothing about your life that would suggest you're living in the true freedom of his grace. If you did not occasionally on social media identify yourself as a Christian, nobody would ever guess. Because you react to the things that are going on in the world in exactly the same way that your unchristian neighbors do. Here's the warning. If God removed those natural branches... You remember the promises he made to Israel in the Old Testament? If he would condemn 
his own people, Israel, and separate them from the rest of his family because they turn their back on him? What in the world makes you think you're exempt? Do not go back. Listen, brothers and sisters, there's freedom, there's comfort, there's grace for every moment, even the ones that we are uncertain about. But it's only through Jesus. And the only Jesus is Lord Jesus. Bow your knees to him. Give him everything. Never look back. And no matter what transpires around you, you can live like a son. You can live like a daughter. Father in heaven, Abba Father, Lord, I thank you that we can make that cry today. Lord, we're all feeling different ways this morning, I'm sure. Father, I'm thinking about the people watching live right now who, because of health concerns, have distanced themselves, and perhaps they're afraid. Lord, may you put that cry within them. May they feel not just the weight of your sovereign control over all things, but may they remember your unconditional love for them. It may or may not be manifest over the next few weeks, but it's already been manifested 2,000 years ago when your son willingly came into this world for a people who did not deserve it, laid down his life and bore the wrath of God for our sins. Father, may we all make our calling and election sure today. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that so many of us have had through experiences, many of them even starting the first of the year, that that none of us would have wanted to go through. But remind us that it really is not this life that we're looking at. Reminds us of our own mortality. Calls us into eternity and shows us the way. Lord, may people know Jesus. And may it begin with the people in this room. And I ask this in his name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.